0: friends. You all get me for one more week. I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to feel healthier, even if my nose is still a bit congested. I feel a lot better this week. Um, I have a, we'll call it a content warning before I do announcements, and uh, you might be wondering why there's going to be a content warning. I think it's because Jordan Calicut is hilarious. He, uh, He picked out the series that we're doing and he planned the scriptures for it and he left me with what I think is one of the most uncomfortable passages of scripture in all the New Testament and then he took a sabbatical. So on the off chance that you have an elementary student with you who who sometimes goes to super church or, or what have you, we're going to talk about marital relations a lot today. And it's not going to be graphic in any way, but it might lead to some conversations on the ride home that you may or may not want to have. So I'm, I'm giving you this time during announcements uh, to send your elementary student to Superchurch. or your husband or wife. Maybe you don't want to talk to them about it. I don't know. <laughs> Our topic today might not sound like it needs a content warning. Our topic today is over-spiritualizing To Avoid Conflict. And if you remember, we're in our Unbalanced series, so each of these sermons has kind of been a bad habit that Christians can get themselves into. And I completely agree that Christians can get in the habit of avoiding conflict and somehow praising God for that. If you could all turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5... In the Pew Bibles, it should be page 954, if I can trust my handwriting. Yeah. So talking about conflict got me, once again, thinking about my relationship with my beautiful wife, whom I love very much. When we were dating, we would spend a lot of time driving around. We lived in different cities, and so one of us was always driving to the other one. And then we drive somewhere else. And we sort of had a script for one of our arguments. And I wonder if any of you have had this script before. We'll be talking, kind of paying attention to each other, but just sort of existing in the same space. And then one of us will get upset about something. And it doesn't matter what the topic was, the argument would always boil down to one person saying, I know what I said, and the other person saying, "Yeah, well I know what I heard." "Well, yeah, but that's not what I said." "Well, yeah, but that's what I heard." "No, I know what I said." "No, I know what I heard." Have any of you ever fallen into the I know what I said, I know what I heard argument? I see some heads nodding. I see some, I think it's so common. I hope it's common because if not that means we fight real special, dear. <laughs> and it's it's an unwinnable argument, right? Because this person, who knows what they said, is completely sure and confident 100% in what they said. And this person is 100% completely confident in what they heard. And now conflict exists. And I just want to tuck that example in the back of your mind, because it's going to come up a little bit later for how I think Christians do conflict badly. But before we get to that, let's read what I think is one of the most uncomfortable chapters in the New Testament. This is Corinthians chapter 5. Paul has been writing to this church in Corinth, talking to them about how to be a church, how to be healthy together, uh, what the lordship of Jesus looks like, what the wisdom of Jesus looks like. And now he needs to correct them on something. And so he starts out in verse 1. Is it actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated by the Gentiles? For a man has his father's wife. Right, we're one verse in and it's already really icky. And there's a lot of commentaries and discussions on what this means. Maybe it's his biological mother, maybe it's his mother in law, maybe it's his stepmother. People do a lot of mental gymnastics to try to make this sound less bad. Every one of those examples is very bad, yes? This will be like my first amen. Can I get an amen? Don't sleep with your mom. All right, sermon done. Everybody go home. It gets worse. It's really icky in verse 1, but Paul could almost deal with that. Look what happens in verse 2. And you are arrogant. You are boastful. You are proud of it. What? The church has gathered around this thing that Paul says not even the pagans do, and they're proud of it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let the person who has done this be removed from among you. And then Paul ramps it from a zero to a hundred in about a second. Kick them out. That's a pretty big jump right away. So this must be serious. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the person who would do such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Not only is this passage super icky, it's also really weird, Nowhere else in scripture are you going to see this phrase about rendering someone unto Satan for the destruction of their flesh. That, that just doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. Intellectually, I struggle with it. Emotionally, I struggle with it. And so what I find is we typically just ignore this entire chapter. We might hit verse 1 where we're like, okay, sexual relationships need to have some sort of standards and boundaries, don't sleep with your mom. Let's go on to verse 6 where we can talk about law, or chapter 6 where we can talk about lawsuits. That's so much more comfortable. But when I looked at the outline for this sermon series and Jordan had written down Corinthians chapter 5, I thought, oh, you scumbag. (laughs) Whom I love and appreciate. (laughs) Not on the same level as my wife, but whom I love and appreciate. Notice, before we go any farther, notice what the purpose of rendering this this person unto Satan is. It's for his own good, if we can sum it up, so that his spirit may be saved, so that his soul may be saved. It's not kick him out so you can all point and laugh at him. It's not kick him out so that you can all realize you're so much better than he is. It's remove him from your presence so that he can understand how serious this issue is. And spoiler alert, if you read all through Corinthians and then into 2 Corinthians, it works. The man, and presumably the the woman, they repent and they're reunited into the body. But there can be no repentance in this situation if the church does one of two things. If the church just puts its hands over its ears and goes, "I don't I don't hear anything. There's nothing going on. It's not a big deal." Teach their own, I mean, I wouldn't sleep with my mom, but if he wants to sleep with his, you know, whatever. I think that's one of the church's very common reactions to sin. Or the church does something else where they just double down on this is so wrong. This is terrible. We're right, you're wrong. Leave and never come back. I think the church overreacts on both sides of it. And I think that's a perfect example for what we do in conflict, because there can be no repentance for this man if there's no conflict, appropriate, healthy conflict. I think that over-spiritualizing conflict does one of two things in less serious examples than this. I think we either keep the peace in the name of love. You all heard the phrase keeping the peace? It's garbage. It's called pretending nothing's wrong while you really hate someone. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever be calm and think things through and be patient. But if your total strategy for how to deal with conflict is to just ignore it and hope people start being nice to you, they never ever will. They will walk all over you and treat you terribly and you will grow to hate them. That doesn't sound like a healthy way for a church to function if somebody on this wing has been silent. Oh, there's only two people over here, so if silently hating somebody over on this wing, and they've decided, well, as long as we sit on opposite sides of the church and never talk to each other, Jesus is probably okay with that. right? That's them putting their hands over their ears and saying, we'll just ignore it. The other thing that this over-spiritualization does is it makes you think that you are so gobsmacked awesome that you are 100% right all of the time. That God has given you a special message and if everyone around you would just listen to you and do what you said, everything would be better. What happens when two people like that come into conflict? Yeah. We all chuckle because it's real bad. And usually that's when somebody leaves a church. Because those two people can't just sit on opposite sides of the church and ignore each other. They're going to post passive-aggressive messages on Facebook. They're going to find that person on Sunday morning with a Bible in their hand, and they're going to go, no, look, see, I'm right. I got it right, and you're wrong. And they're both going to be so sure that God has revealed something special to them that the conflict won't resolve. You see how in both of these situations, the ignoring and the fighting, the conflict doesn't actually resolve. So I think there's a better way. If not, then again, it's like sermon over, good luck, you know, figure it out, I don't know. But this isn't going to be a seminar on how to resolve your conflict. The point of this sermon is to convince you that there is a better, more godly way. And that if you want to do a seminar on how to do conflict resolution and how to take responsibility, we can do that. We can do small groups, we can do Bible studies, you can go to a counselor, you can buy a DVD. I don't have enough time, and you're not going to get up here and play act with me to actually resolve conflict. What I'm hoping is to convince you that there is a godly way to handle conflict. So I think the scariest words that a minister can ever hear, when somebody walks into my office and they're like, hey, I want to talk to you, I think the scariest words I ever hear are, so I was praying last night. You might wonder, Eric, why is that scary? Because it's almost always followed up with, and God told me to do this. And it's spoken with such conviction that there's no conversation that can happen. If somebody walked into my office and said, so I was praying last night, and God wants me to leave my spouse and become a missionary. Now, like, real talk, I have heard that exact sentence come out of the mouth of, a, like, a 55-year-old married-for-30-year Christian. Came in and said, I was praying last night, I was doing my Bible study, and God told me I need to leave my spouse and my kids and I need to go be a missionary. No, I mean, like, it's really hard to laugh because that's not funny because it's a real person, but that is so absurd that God would tell you to do something that clearly scripture doesn't say. But this person walked into that conversation 100% assured of what God had told him. He was over-spiritualizing this life decision. And he had no intentions of having a conflict with me, right? Right? He showed up and he said, There's going to be no conflict at all. I'm telling you what God has told me. As a minister, what could I possibly say to that person after they've pulled the God card out of their pocket? Do you understand how they just walked in and handcuffed me? I think you all do that with each other, and I think you do it with yourself too. We get ideas in our head of what we want to do, and then we claim that God is the one who gave it to us. And I want to provide an alternative. I think that we need to come together as friends and family and be willing to let other people in the church look us in the eye and say, I don't think that's right. Why do you think God's telling you that? Can we look at Scripture together and Maybe you should make this decision so quickly. But that takes a lot of relationships and that takes a lot of trust and that takes a lot of work. And if I came to somebody and I said, "Oh, God is telling me to do this." And they said, "Hey, wait a minute. I don't think so." My first response is going to be to say, "Well, you don't have enough faith. You're not my friend. I'm going to go talk to somebody who agrees with me." Do you see how that handcuffs the conflict from happening? How we over-spiritualize it and don't actually allow discussion to happen. When we looked at Corinthians chapter 5, Paul also didn't let discussion happen there. Because that issue was supposed to be so black and white that the church should have just understood it. As I believe the issue of leave your spouse and your kids and become a missionary is also pretty black and white. I want to look at one more black and white example in Corinthians chapter 6 before we get to these gray areas, the places where discussion really lives. So jump down to Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does that person dare go to law, law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So just to give you the context, Christians in the church at Corinth would get in a legal conflict with each other, and they'd go to court. They'd sue each other. And Paul says, how could you possibly go to the courts when you should go to the church and trust them to figure it out? He's he's confused. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Paul gets real salty here, are you incompetent To judge trivial cases? He says, Don't you know that you understand the core values of the universe? You understand what Jesus is about? Can't you even figure out who wronged who? Are you so, he says, incompetent, right? That, That sounds really soft, but it's are you so dumb that you can't figure this stuff out? I think he gets to say that because he's writing a letter from really far away. It's way harder to look someone in the eye. I'll look at Paul so I'm not embarrassing him. You are so dumb, right? That that takes a whole other level. But I think Paul would be willing to do it. Look at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to shame you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So he doubles down on the, are you all really so dumb you can't figure this out? To have lawsuits at all is already a defeat. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Then it gets real bad, and you see what the actual issue at Corinth is in verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud each other. Paul ramps it up in intensity. I don't know why I'm doing downward steps here. Let me try that again. Paul ramps it up in intensity. He says, why are you you going to the judges to sue each other? Can't the church figure it out? And he says, wait a minute. Why are you suing each other at all? And then he says, wait a minute. Why don't you stop cheating each other? This is another black and white area for Paul. There's no discussion on whether or not you should cheat your neighbors out of money. There's also no discussion on whether or not you should take them to human courts and sue them. If the church is functioning the way it's supposed to be, Paul says you got this figured out. But this is another black and white issue. He just tells them, knock it off. But what happens when it's not a black and white issue? Jump all the way over to Corinthians chapter 7. Let's talk about sex again. So Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they wrote. They said, Paul, we heard this thing, you shouldn't have sex. What do you think about that, Paul? Verse 2, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Then he goes on to say the wife doesn't have authority over her body, the husband doesn't have authority over his body. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I've been married for 13, going on 14 years, something like that. And again, we're not getting graphic, but I want to sort of relate to you all. There have been conflicts about sex. I think that's a pretty common conflict for married couples to have. In fact, when I do premarital counseling, I tell people, this is the best first problem your marriage is going to have. It's going to be weird. You're not going to know what's going on. You're going to have to work it out together, and there's going to be conflict. There's not a black and white here. Not every relationship is the same. And do you see that in the words of Paul even? He definitely says, yes, it's okay to have sex. In fact, it's going to be dumb and dangerous not to. You might be at risk of temptation and you might be at risk of the devil, right? He talks about Satan here. But in verse 5, he says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement There's supposed to be discussion going on. You might agree to something. You might have to figure out this conflict and come to an agreement. Look at verse 6, though. Now as a concession, not as a command. Do you feel that we're entering into the gray area? Not as a command, but as a concession. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. There's, there's this different level of intensity. Some things are black and white, some things are gray. Then you look at verse 12. To the rest, I say, I not the Lord. Paul is engaging into a really difficult discussion with the church in Corinth and the married people there. And he's saying, you all got to talk this out. You cannot over-spiritualize it, which is what they did in their first verse. Their first verse was an over-spiritual Oversimplification, overspiritualization. over-spiritualization. They said, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Boy, that'd be just a real easy out. I mean, I wouldn't like it, but at least it'd be spelled out. If you're a Christian, you just never do this. Sometimes that simplicity is appealing to me because it takes away my personal responsibility. It takes away my need to think. It takes away my need to do conflict. I can just go, well, God said it, so I'll do it. The problem is God didn't say that. The problem is God has asked us to work really hard on figuring out tough issues together. And that, again, that takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of trust, and it takes a lot of relationship building. I want to point out one thing that we skipped. They start by saying it'd be good for a man not to have sex with a woman. In the paragraph right before that, Paul has to tell them to stop visiting prostitutes. Do you see how these do not balance out? This is the church that goes, sex is bad, we should never have sex. And Paul is saying, there's a dude sleeping with his mom, and you all got to stop going to prostitutes. They are avoiding the conflict. They're putting their hands over their ears and saying, oh, God said don't have sex, just don't do it. Don't. And what are they doing? They're sinning over and over and over again. Because this oversimplification, this over-spiritualization takes away our ability to think. It takes away our common sense. Because we just throw everything on God even when he didn't say it. Do you remember Adam and Eve doing that? Chapter 1 in Genesis, the snake shows up and says, didn't God say don't, even, don't eat this, don't even touch it? And Eve's like, oh, like yeah, we're not going to touch it. God didn't say don't touch it. She's, God said don't eat it. First chapter in Genesis, Eve is already over-spiritualizing. She's already saying, I'm making up my own rules. And it didn't work out well for her either. I want to jump all the way to the heart of the issue. I want to go to Matthew chapter 6. I bet some of you thought we were going to the conflict resolution in Matthew. But I want to go to the Lord's Prayer. I actually think the Lord's Prayer hits this issue more in the heart. Matthew chapter 6, page 811 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to start a little bit before the prayer. We're going to understand why Jesus gave this prayer. In verse 5, he says, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they can be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And then jump down to verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. That's Jesus saying don't over-spiritualize prayer. Prayer is pretty straightforward, as weird as it is. You talk to God. If you're willing to listen, he talks back. But people have been over-spiritualizing prayer so they can get attention or so they can say the right combination of magic words. Let's look at Jesus' prayer, and then we're going to read the really scary two verses that everybody leaves out after the prayer. I'd ask you to repeat after me, or repeat with me, but I find that everybody's learned the Lord's Prayer in slightly different translations, and it's just a mess when we all say it together. But if you'd like to say it in your head, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? Is the one passage of the Bible where everyone's a King James believer? Like, that's a very simple prayer. Lord, your will be done. Please feed me today. Help me not do sinful stuff. But look what comes right after it. I don't like reading these two scriptures. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Okay, that one's fine, right? Mm. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Mm. This is not for like comedic effect. I feel really bad when I read that. Because I know that I don't handle conflict as well as I should. Because I know that I'm pretty willing to put my hands over my ears and pretend there is no conflict and say, well, God will handle it. And sometimes I'm really more happy than I should to put on my fight face and go tell someone how wrong they are. But that's not what the end of the Lord's Prayer says. That's not what the end of this very straightforward prayer says. Jesus says, forgive people, and I'll forgive you. Don't forgive people, and I won't forgive you. And I'm making the case that you, you really can't forgive people from afar if they're still in church with you. I know Laura really well, so I'll, I'll bounce from picking on Laura to picking on Paul. If Laura and I have this big, giant, blow-up fight, and we still go to the same church, but I decide I can never sit by her ever again, So I'm way over here now. Can I honestly say, like, well, I've forgiven her. We're not fighting anymore. Is that forgiveness? It doesn't feel like forgiveness to me, even though I want it to. It feels like brushing it under the rug until Laura and I find something else to fight about. Laura and I don't fight. Maybe ever. Very good friends. I just feel like I'm tanking my my relationships with everyone up here when I preach. And it can be different, right? If somebody gets up and moves across the country, or somebody—I'm not saying that forgiveness can never happen at long distance—but the people I'm preaching to today are the people sitting in this room together as a community. The people that Paul was writing to in Corinth went to church together, and he was concerned about their unity. We cannot over spiritualize conflict away. Because if we do, there's a really scary thing that Jesus just said. Let's go ahead and jump to Matthew 18. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Matthew 18, verse 15. Before we read this Uh, description of how we might handle conflict resolution, I want to make the point that none of this is legalistic. None of this is a checkbox that says if you did all of these boxes, you're free and clear. You don't have to worry about putting in any extra effort. The effort is always on you to keep going, to understand the situation, to know the person, to approach them in the best way you can. When passages like Matthew 18 get used to defend your own actions, you're missing the point. You're you're over-spiritualizing and you're using this scripture as a weapon. This scripture should motivate us to reconcile with each other. If it does anything other than that, well, you put your fight face on. Are there any Gilmore Girl fans out there? Not just a couple. There's a funny episode in Gilmore Girls where they talk about fight face. And my wife loves Gilmore Girls, so I've seen every episode about 11 times. (laughs) I love her very much. (laughs) All right, I suspect you've all made it to Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That sounds so good. If somebody does something mean to you, go tell them they're wrong. We just put the period there and end it. That's, that's when it becomes a weaponized scripture. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If somebody does something bad to you, you go and talk to them one-on-one. You don't take the opportunity to shame and embarrass them in front of everyone. You don't do that in front of people because they get defensive. Have you ever been called out in front of somebody? I have, and I do not respond well. I put my fight face on. But if you go to them one-on-one, you can talk to them, they can talk to you, and if you figured it out, you've gained a brother, and you never have to tell anyone else about it, ever. You've just settled the matter between the two of you. Forgiveness has happened. Conflict has been resolved. That doesn't always work. Verse 17 Sorry, verse 16. But if they do not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you need to bring some people who you both respect, who understand the situation, then do it. But you hear we're starting to transition into some legal proceedings here. I hope this is a serious enough issue to actually bring charges up. We make it to verse 18, right? No, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's kind of what happened with the church in Corinth that we started with, except they missed out on steps one and two. Nobody went to the guy who was sleeping with his mom and said, hey, you should stop this. Or if they did do that, he didn't listen. And in fact, the whole church was actually feeling really good about it. I haven't answered why they might be feeling really good about it. If you want to have that conversation, you'll have to come to my office because I've only got time for one sermon today, not like the five of them that we could have done. But eventually it got to the point that they had to say to this man, you're not actually a Christian if you keep doing this. And you can't be a part of our community because you need to realize what Christians do and what they don't do. Now, when you hear it put that serious, that's probably not on the level of, well, somebody parked crooked and took up two spaces at church, and they really hurt my feelings, and when I told them about it, they laughed, and I wasn't trying to be funny. So they should get kicked out of the church for that. Like, we, we understand there's a difference here. Which is why I'm telling you this isn't legalistic. Every time one of you offends me with a careless word, I'm not going to think, okay, how do we ramp this up to church discipline? Every time that I hurt one of you with a careless word, I hope that you're not thinking, okay, how do we ramp this up to church discipline? Because it's not legalistic. If we made it legalistic, we would be over-spiritualizing it so we could put our hands over our ears and not have to think hard. This is a critique that the church gets all the time, and this is kind of where I want to wrap up. Becoming a Christian does not mean shutting your brain off. Becoming a Christian does not mean shutting your heart off. Jesus does expect us to act and think differently than the rest of the world. But he doesn't expect us to just legalistically, blindly obey some stuff we made up. And when I put it that way, it sounds almost too simple. You are supposed to be different. You are supposed to think different and act different and love differently than the world does. But we can still use our common sense and we can still work hard and you are expected to put effort into conflict, put effort into love and forgiveness and reconciliation. And when we're unwilling to do that as a church when we either say, well, the love of Jesus means i got to put my hands over my ears and ignore everything, or when we say the love of Jesus means i got to go tell you how wrong you are, we break down the church. There is no loving community when we can't work out conflict together. Because i got to tell you all, I love Trisha more than I love any of you, and we have conflict. So I imagine you all have conflict with each other too. And if we can't avoid it, let's deal with it in a healthy way. This is the vision I have for the church for for unbelievers. This is the vision when I think, why would somebody want to be a Christian? This is what draws me in personally. A place where people love each other, where, where conflict and failure is an opportunity for growth, not punishment. That's what Jesus offered us. He will reconcile with us. So if you're a Christian today, please set that example Take a small step in your life so that our church looks how it's supposed to look. Would you pray with me so that we might be able to do that? Heavenly Father, you are the great reconciler. You bring perfect grace and mercy and forgiveness into every situation. Lord, you look at sin and evil and you call it what it is and you still bring grace and mercy and reconciliation. Let us be people of truth and of love. Let us be people who speak truth in love. Let us be people who don't let our knowledge puff us up, but people who use our love to build each other up. Father, we know there is conflict in the hearts of the people in this church. We know there's conflict in the families in this church. Lord, our, our world is full of conflict and there's no avoiding it. Thank you for your spirit and for your church that can support us and encourage us and guide us and lead us as we step out and as we try to handle our conflict in a godly spiritual way. Lord, we we ask special grace this week that you would put opportunities in our life to grow in this way and that you would protect us from our own stupidity and the stupidity of others. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.